You're listening to a Bellingcat Discord server stage talk titled How to Get a Job as an Open Source Researcher. The talk features advice from Bellingcat researchers Tristan Lee, Eric Toller, Hannah Bagdazar, and Giancarlo Fiorella, along with Jake Godin from NUSI. The stage talk was hosted by Giancarlo Fiorella in the Bellingcat Discord server on May 23rd, 2022. All right. Um, yeah, so good afternoon, everybody. I hope you're doing okay. Um, I am Giancarlo Fiorella. I'm a, I'm a researcher and a trainer here at Bellingcat. And I am uh, going to be talking to you along with some of my colleagues if, if they want to um, uh, talk as well. I'll, I'll give them a chance to talk. Uh, we're going to be talking about some experiences that we've had, in particular my own experience, and some tips and some suggestions on how you might be able to get a job as an open source researcher. So it's really cool to see so many of you engaged in open source research here on the server. I see M2X is here. Uh, Aaron is here as well. Um, who, who, uh, who else is here? Deuteroast. I've, I've seen a high Deuteroast from the um, uh, a Twitch stream. Hansa24 is here. Sarah's here. So yeah, you guys are all doing really cool open source research, uh, I'm thinking specifically of all the Ukraine geolocations that you've been doing. So that's really awesome. And so some of you might be wondering, well, how do I turn that into a job? Can I get a job uh, at some point as an open source researcher? So how can I do that? So as I said, I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, my own experience and how I got a job, and then um, some sort of suggestions, some tips on how you might be able to find work as an open source researcher, paid work as an open source researcher based on some observations, and then I'll open up the floor to uh, Q&A. And then I'll open it up as well to my uh, colleagues if anybody wants to uh, add to any of, of what I'm about to say. So I'll talk for, I don't know, I guess we'll go for like maybe half an hour and then we'll do the, um, the Q&A. Okay, so um, I'll tell you just a tiny bit about my own experience. So how did I get a job at Bellingcat? So it's a job that I consider to be a dream job. I knew about Bellingcat before I, I worked here and I always thought it was the coolest place in the world. And I used to look at Bellingcat as like the way that I look at like, I don't know, the BBC or CNN. It was just like a place that was out there doing cool work, doing investigations, putting out really important research. But I never thought I would work here. I just never, it was never in my life plan. Um, just like I never thought, you know, I don't think I'll ever work at the BBC, right? Or like a place like CNN. It was just like so high above my head um, that I was just, I never thought I would work here. So then how did I get here? Um, I'll tell you that um, the reason that I got hired or, or yeah, sort of my path towards Bellingcat began like really four years before I was hired, unbeknownst to me. So in 2014, I saw that Bellingcat was starting. So I saw, I remember I looked, I saw the Kickstarter campaign to raise money to, to launch Bellingcat in that year. And I was familiar with the work that Elliot had been doing on, on identifying videos from Syria and from Libya and from Ukraine. Um, Elliot and the people that were sort of working in that circle, I'd been following them prior to the, the launch of Bellingcat. And I always thought that work was really interesting. I used to follow it quite a bit. And I used to, um, yeah, I used to think like, that's really cool. Like I could never do something like that. I'm just a consumer of this information. In 2014, when Bellingcat launched, I um, was inspired and I thought, well, maybe I can do something like this. Maybe I can't do like the crazy investigations that they do, but maybe I can do something that approximates Bellingcat research. 
And in 2014, there was these protests that were happening in Venezuela, uh, these really big protests. And um, I thought, okay, well, Bellingcat is a group that does research on conflict that is happening in faraway places, like in Syria and in Ukraine. And you don't have to actually be in those countries to be able to discern what's happening, right? Because there's all these videos on social, on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter. So I thought maybe I can do something like what Bellingcat is doing in Syria, in Libya, and in Ukraine. Maybe I can do something like that for Venezuela. So I started a WordPress site um, that was, uh, nobody ever read it. Like I'm telling you that I worked on this WordPress site every single day for four years, literally every single day. I think in four, in four years, I must've missed like five days. Uh, and what I would do is that every single day, I would go on Venezuelan news sites and I would go on Twitter and Facebook and I would um, um, look at what was going on in Venezuela. And then I would write like an, uh, an update, like an English language update, you know, saying like, here's what happened in Venezuela today. And I did that every day and every single day for like two or three hours, I would just do that. That was like my life for, for years and years and years. And I'm telling you, no one ever read that site. If I got like 10 views a day, it was incredible. Like, oh my God, 10 people clicked on my site and read, read my updates. But it was really a passion project for me. And again, it was, it was an attempt to kind of emulate what Bellingcat was doing. It was, okay, if Bellingcat is doing research on Syria, Libya, and Ukraine, I can maybe do something like that for Venezuela. And so I did that for four years. Um, in that time, I also applied to uh, a PhD program at the University of Toronto, and I started doing research on Venezuelan protests. And so in 2014, when I was um, hired, uh, sorry, in 2014, I'm jumping ahead, uh, somebody just sent me a, a, a link to the blog. Yes, that is the one. A-J-B-A-J-B-A-J-B. That's the blog that I'm talking about. It's, the, it's in Venezuela.com. So I worked on that for four years. Um, and so in 2018, in early 2018, I was a PhD student and I had four years worth of work that I had put into this website. And in early 2018, there was this big event in Venezuela. There was a, a rebel leader who was found by the government and there was a, um, a, the government surrounded his house. And this guy, his name was Oscar Perez. He was live streaming his execution basically on Instagram. And that day I stayed at home and I had a Twitter thread. My, I had a Twitter account with like a thousand followers. Like, by any kind of like metric of like how many people are following me or how many people are visiting my site, my site was a failure. Like I had no followers on Twitter, uh, but again, it was a passion project. So in early 2018, this is happening. I'm, I do a live thread about this event. And by the end of the day, a lot of people had taken notice of it. I was doing like live translations of what he was saying on Instagram. And there was a researcher from Bellingcat who, who DM'd me at the end of the day. And they said, hey, I'm, uh, my name is Elium Leroy. Elium is now with the BBC. And he said, hey, I have been following your Twitter thread. Uh, I, I want to write an article for Bellingcat. I don't know if you've heard about Bellingcat. I want to write an article about it for the site. And I'm wondering if you can help me do that. Because I see that you, you know, you know, you, I saw your website. I know you've been writing about Venezuela for four years. So maybe you can help out. So I started helping out as a volunteer. And all of 2018, on the weekends, basically, when I wasn't, you know, focusing on my PhD, I would help out with this article. And so throughout 2018, I think I helped out with two articles. I did a, a webinar, I'm sorry, a workshop with Bellingcat. And then at the end of 2018, I was um, hired. Um, I was offered a position. So unbeknownst to me, I didn't know that there was a position open. 
if I had known that there was a position opening, I wouldn't have applied for it because again, I was thinking like, I'm, I can't work at Bellingcat. Like these guys are doing this really cool work. I'm not going to apply to a job at the BBC. Like I'm never going to get that. I'm not going to apply for a job at CNN. I'm not going to apply for a job at Bellingcat because I'll never, you know, why would they pick me, right? Um, but again, because I had this demonstrated body of work that I had built up for three years, uh, sorry, for four years on this website, I actually did have some kind of foundation for getting hired. And in fact, I was hired. So that's how I started doing open source research. I was basically copying what, what Elliot was doing, but for Venezuela. And I did that for four years. Again, no one ever came to my website. That was fine because it was a passion project. And eventually I, I was hired. Um, again, unbeknownst to me, I, I, I stumbled backwards into, <laughs> into this job. I wasn't planning on, on applying and I got it. So what's the lesson there for you? Um, or, you know, what, what are some takeaways there on how you might be able to get a job here? Um, I, I, I want to mention four. So the first one is to find a niche that you're interested in. And, that's, and it's really important that it's something that you are interested in. Because, again, my website about Venezuelan protest, no one went to it. So if I was in it because I wanted to amass followers or I wanted to, like, monetize the website, I would have quit, like, a month in because no one ever came to my site. But I wasn't in it for that. I was interested in it. It was really, it was really personal for me to do this blog. So uh, that niche, that very personal niche of protest in Venezuela is what drove me to write for the site for four years, right? It was really thankless, uh, but I was so passionate about it that I didn't need anybody to thank me for it. I was just you know, doing it compulsively almost. So if you have a niche, you might already have one. Um, or you might end up discovering one just by hanging out on Twitter. I noticed that a lot of people who've joined the server um, have joined because they discovered Bellingcat and open source research more generally after the war and at the second, this invasion of Ukraine started in February. So I know lots of folks have said, oh yeah, like I've just found out about the server. It's so cool. I didn't know what open source research was before the war in Ukraine. Now I'm really interested in it. So for some of you, you may be discovering your niche now. You might be discovering that actually you're really interested in following conflict. You're really interested maybe in IDing weapons or tanks, that kind of stuff. So find a niche and it, make sure that it's something that you really care about. And then think about this leads into the second point. So the first point is find a niche. The second point is to build up a body of work. So once you have a niche, start working, start putting out work on it. So for me, again, my niche was protest in Venezuela. My body of work was a WordPress site in Venezuela.com. I signed up for WordPress. It took 10 minutes. WordPress is free. And I started every single day putting out a post. Here's what happened in Venezuela today. Here's a, a video of a protest. Here's this and here's that, right? So um, you can start uh, producing work. Um, you can start, you, for example, as I said, you can do WordPress thread, uh, WordPress uh, sites. I see a lot of people doing really cool open source research on Medium. So Medium is, a, is another page where you can just write a post and share it on there. Of course, Twitter threads are huge, right? That's where most of the really good open source research uh, in the world is done, is done on Twitter threads. So you can set up a Twitter account and say, you know what, I'm really interested in, I don't know, um, environmental devast uh, devastation as a result of conflict in Mexico's northern regions. So you can set up Twitter threads every once in a while with some observations. And if you do that consistently over time, you're going to be building a body of work. So um, you're going to have things that you can point to and say, look, I wrote this Twitter thread, or I have this WordPress site, or I have all of these Medium posts. Uh, there's a really, really good researcher I know. Their name is Line of Actual Control. I don't know if you've ever, if you've seen him on Twitter, but the, he's an independent researcher. 
and he does amazing work and he posts on medium and he does twitter threads and you know it's an anonymous account so that's totally cool obviously uh but if if line of actual control ever wants to get a job as an open source researcher somewhere like with a news organization with bellingcat they have so much work that they can point to because for many years they've been writing twitter threads they've been doing medium posts and the quality of their work is very good you can also make YouTube videos, obviously. I mean, you can do whatever. You can make TikTok videos. Um, creativity is key here. Um, um, you know, how do I translate my niche into, into work that I can share with people? So find a niche, number one. Number two is build up a body of work. Number three is to collaborate. I think this is really important. So find ways to collaborate, to work with other people. So much open source work is based on collaboration. So you remember my story from the beginning of the, of the talk today. I was brought into the world of open source research because a researcher from Bellingcat saw my website and they said, let me collaborate with this person. Let me ask them if they want to work on something with me. And so find ways to do that. Find ways to make connections, to network by working on, on things together. And it's really great to see so many of you here. I mentioned a couple of you, M2X, um, uh, you know, uh, um, everybody who's doing Hansa24, everybody who's doing these geolocations in, in the Discord server, you're working on stuff together. Like you, you all know each other pretty well now because you've been working on these, on these uh, collaborations together for so long. So find ways to collaborate. Collaboration is good. It's fundamental to open source research, and it's also a really good way to network. And then the last point is um, not really a, a point. Well, yeah, it is a point is that the, the purpose of doing this is, of course, you're producing work, you're doing research, you're learning skills, right? Like you're learning how to do research. How do I, how do I make a successful Twitter thread? Um, how do I make a, a medium post that is clear in what it is that I want to explain? Um, you're collaborating with people. So the point of doing all of that is not just for your own personal sort of growth and, and to, and to you know, share your research with the world, but also so that if a job position opens up somewhere, you can point to all of that that you've done. So you can point to all of your Twitter threads, all of your Medium posts, all of your WordPress posts, and you can apply with those. So um, when I applied, when I got the job at Bellingcat, like no one asked to see my resume. Um, I, I don't think they did. I might, I might have sent a resume at some point, uh, but it was after I had already had the job um, because my resume was my WordPress page. My resume was my Twitter threads, right? So that, that was the body of work that I could point to and that somebody hiring me would say, oh yeah, I can see from this that you, 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 know, you, you know a little bit about what you're talking about, all right? So find a niche, make sure it's something that you're passionate about, build up a body of work, do Twitter threads, write for WordPress, make media posts, you know, get on TikTok and start making videos, find ways to collaborate with people. And if you do those things, over time, um, hopefully you'll be able to, to apply for work and say, hey, look at all the cool stuff I've been doing. So at this point, I want to take a little break here. Does anybody, any, uh, any uh, fellow Bellingcat folks uh, want to add anything to that? Any, any of you want to tell your own experience? Otherwise, I can keep going for about, yeah, so I see Tristan is here. Hi, Tristan. Hey, uh, can you guys hear me? Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just want to echo what Giancarlo said. I think that's all really, really good advice and kind of fits with uh, what I did. Um, so my background is kind of more in the data science and programming uh, sphere. Um, but I think a lot of the advice is still pretty um, on point. Like, for example, number one, find a niche. Um, I, my niche was kind of a uh, 
applying data science and scraping methods to um, neo-Nazi organizations and communities. Um, basically, you know, there's a lot of people re like um, looking at these neo-Nazi communities and organizations, and there's a lot of people who know programming and web and web scraping, but there really did not seem to be very many people like scraping these communities and uh like for example making scrapes of various like nazi forums and analyses of them so i that's kind of how i got my start and i was very passionate about it um and um, that got me in contact with like a ton of you know re like researchers um um both uh like some some of them are um were bellingcat contributors um and yeah like this and like it's really hard to overemphasize the importance of collaboration and networking um just because you never know what connection is going to you know change your life or send things over the edge or what connection is going to lead to another connection which will like you know m which will get you in contact with someone who can you know get you a job or can collaborate on some interesting project so yeah i mean it's like being open to like talking with new people, working on new projects can be a great way of also just learning new skills. Um, in terms of a body of work, it might be worth emphasizing that, um, especially if some of the work you do is into, I guess, dangerous individuals or organizations, it can be difficult to figure out how to balance the need for anonymity with the desire for. Um, developing a body of work and promoting it. Um, so that was something I struggled with, um, and I don't honestly have a very good answer. Um, it's really kind of it can be hard to deal, hard to figure out where to draw the line because you want to put your work out and you want to and you want people to look at it, but you also don't want to potentially expose yourself to retaliation from you know um, dangerous organizations or individuals or or states. So. I don't know, uh, Giancarlo, do you have uh, some insight into how to balance the, I guess, um, anonymity and kind of secrecy and security with um, promoting your own work? Yeah, so I'll say, thanks for that, Tristan. Um, I'll say that my research was on, again, my this blog that I started uh, in 2014 was about protests in Venezuela. Back then, I was pretty paranoid because I still have family in Venezuela, and I just, I don't know, I wasn't sure if one day I was going to write a post that was going to make the government upset and then they were going to go after my family. So, you know, I was thinking worst case scenario, right? Why take that risk? So I signed up for the WordPress site. Uh, you know, WordPress hides your Whois information. So like if somebody did a Whois search, uh, it would go to like, I don't know, wherever the WordPress servers are in like North Carolina or whatever, which is not where I lived. And, and so I felt pretty safe through that anonymity on the website. And also on Twitter, I was anonymous. I, I was um, anonymous in, in Venezuela was my Twitter account. But interestingly, I remember when I wrote that article, that first art article that I co-wrote for Bellingcat with Alium Leroy, we had a conversation. Alium, who um, is a fantastic researcher and, and, a, and a fantastic person, he was like, hey, so we're going to publish next week. Do you want to use your real name, right? Like, do you want people to know, like, Giancarlo Fiorella wrote this? Or do you have a security concern where you, you want to use in Venezuela? And I remember I thought about that for a while. I talked to my family about it. And they were like, no, just do it as Giancarlo. Because, uh, you know, because then, you know, you, you're building up a body of work, as Tristan is saying. So I was really lucky in that sense. Um, I should say I was doing that research outside of Venezuela. So I've lived in Canada my, my whole life. Um, so I was in a really sort of privileged position to be able to do that. But yeah, if I lived in Venezuela, I would probably have published anonymously. 
uh, for good reason. Same, same thing with somebody like Tristan. Like if you're doing research into the far right, uh, yeah, like you have lots of concerns above what I had to, to try to be anonymous. But I will say one thing there is that you don't, one of the cool things about um, the open source research world is that you can be anonymous. Like there is no stigma attached to anonymity, I think, um, for the most part anyways. Like some of the best researchers out there, it, like I'm looking at John Markey, who's in the chat. Hey, John. Um, I mean, <laughs> incredible researcher, one of the best geolocators, not the best geolocator in the world. And I don't know if that's your real name. I'm assuming it isn't, right? Um, but but that doesn't take away from any of the work that you've done. And so there's lots of people out there in the open source world who we just know as anonymous accounts, like Caliber Obscura, again, also like a, a legend in the open source world with the best weapons person out there. No idea what their real name is, right? Um, uh, and that doesn't, again, anonymity doesn't take away from, from their accomplishments. It, it does get a little bit complicated, like once you're offered a contract. Like if, the, if CNN wanted to hire Caliber Obscura or if the BBC wanted to hire John, uh, at some point, I think they would have to give up their real name because you, you have to have to sign a contract and stuff, right? So at that point, you might have to come out uh, with your real name. But up until then, I think anonymity is, is something that's, you know, it's perfectly normal in, in our field. Um, any other um, any other thoughts there, Tristan, or anybody else? Um, uh, Jake, uh, Eric, Hannah, Glib, anything you want? Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Just like um, uh, yeah, kind of kind of echoing what John Carlos said. Like yeah, it can be like it won't like um, maybe I'll talk a bit about my experience working yeah. um, getting to work with Bellingcat. Um, so basically, um, yeah, I was doing kind of this like anonymous like research into uh, far right networks um, and. Um, I think back in like tw late, late 2019, I saw that um, Bellingcat put out a, a job posting for data scientist. Um, I applied. Um, I didn't get it, but um, uh, uh, one of the um, Bellingcat uh, researchers, Johanna Wild, got in contact with me because uh, she liked my um, application, and uh, we uh, um, sh and uh, we kind uh, she kind of added me to this like uh, early version of our tech volunteer program, which. Uh, um, it was nice to kind of like get in contact with some people, but there were some problems with how it was run and, uh, it wasn't very, uh, and, uh, uh, anyway, it, uh, that kind of like, uh, was on the back burner for a while. And then I saw they made another, uh, job app, uh, data science application back in, I don't know, 2021, like last October, I applied again. Um, and, uh, somehow they decided to hire me. Um, and yeah, I mean, just kind of echoing what Giancarlo said, it can be, like, it was kind of scary because, like, they asked me for my actual resume and, like, uh, like the first time I applied and I was used to, you know, being totally anonymous and it was scary, like, seeing, like, my name on the resume or, like, for example, like, after I started um, working at Bellingcat, I changed my name, my Discord name to my actual name and uh, it still kind of scares me sometimes when I see uh, my actual name on this, but... uh but uh, yeah, it can it can be kind of a trip. So don't uh, don't worry if you're if it makes you kind of uncomfortable to be like ah, everyone can see my name because uh, it's a thing. Yeah, I, I remember when you made that change, and I was like, oh, so that's that's his name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, I would call you by your old nickname uh, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, thanks for that, Eric and, and Hannah. Do you want to add anything? Sure. Um, I can a little bit. So um, yeah, I think you got a really good way of describing all this Giancarlo when you talked about finding a niche um, and Tristan as well. Um, and then follow off on that because that's kind of, I get this question a million, like every like workshop or event I've ever done will always ask, you know, how do I, you know, get a job doing this stuff? Um, 
and yeah, and the answer is basically the best you can try to find a niche that's interesting and not that's not too saturated. Um, try to bring whatever your skills, whatever into it. And I, I mean, I know, you know, the way we hire now is a little bit different than it used to be, just because we have so many more positions, like you know, data scientists and all that stuff now that we did it used to. But I know definitely early when we hired um, researchers and trainers, especially a little bit earlier on, we we're getting like Giancarlo and some other people. Um, kind of the number one thing we looked for, um, more than, I mean, you know, skills and stuff are, are great and all that stuff, but probably just, you know, initiative and, um, kind of the question of, you know, if we didn't hire this person to do, to do this work, would they be doing it on their own, um, for, you know, for, for free or for fun or as a hobby or whatever, because at least with our work environment, um, we're, you know, we're very decentralized. You know, we have an office technically, but most people work from home. We don't have, you know, middle managers telling you what to do. It's all very, you know, self-starting initiative driven. And so able to have that is really important. But I think the other thing I'd really want to stress with um, open source work is that the vast majority of the jobs out there doing open source stuff aren't um, in fields like human rights, you know, violations, you know, things like, you know, like us, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch, New York Times, all that stuff. The vast majority of work out there that does open source work are things like corporate security work, um, traveler safety, due diligence, background checks, you know, things like that. So uh, you know those jobs are very interesting. I, my first job out of out of grad school was I worked at Bank of America for um, a year or so, doing you know very boring uh, you know corporate security kind of stuff. I got paid like fifteen dollars an hour, like very you know very simple work. But it was a lot of just open source stuff. It was just checking on you know uh, making sure it wasn't like traveler safety incidents and things like that. It's all open source. So this you know the the work on here and that, that was a very boring version the other ones you can get are a lot more exciting but like you know basically every multinational corporation out there has open source researchers but they don't say this is an open source research job they say this is you know corporate security or traveler safety or stuff like that um and there are all sorts of other um jobs out there that aren't quite so i don't know um that Another way of putting it is think about one of the other words that people use to describe open source research that aren't like osent or whatever because there's a lot, lot, lot of work out there doing this stuff, but people don't always phrase it in, in this particular way. So there's the field is a lot bigger than you think it would be, um, but with that in mind. Thanks, Eric. I see, uh, so Hannah's here also, and Jake, I don't know if you wanna, hey, Hannah. Hi. Yeah, I think I'll hop on and just talk about how I kind of got to this as well. Uh, I had a sort of different experience because I had like a more like formalized introduction to open source. So I um, I was at UC Berkeley when they started the Human Rights Investigations Lab. And so I was trained by people um, like from Bellingcat and from Amnesty who came in and gave us a formal course on how to do open source. And so uh, I was there for two and a half years and had that sort of like formal training, which I think is a bit different. And I mean, we do trainings, of course, but uh, to have that in the university setting, that was kind of like how I was set up for it. And then from there, I went into uh, international criminal law. And so I had this yeah, very sort of different experience doing open source, but in that realm. And so I think what everyone has said about, uh, you know, having your niche, it doesn't have to be a super small niche, like international criminal law or international law is huge. Um, but having like, you know, something that you're interested in and something that, uh, yeah, you can go really far with. I think like what everyone else said, like, uh, just think about what you are interested in. And if you're interested in open source, combine those two. Uh, and then I had a much more, yeah, I had a more formalized application process as well because I was hired a bit later. Uh, but yeah, I applied actually in 2020 to an admin position at, uh, 
Bellingcat because I just really wanted to get my foot in the door. And they said, no, uh, you're not, uh, this role doesn't really work for you, but we'll keep you in mind for other uh, opportunities. And uh, so similar with Tristan. And then when this, uh, yeah, managing the volunteer community came up, then uh, I yeah was just contacted directly by Desi. So that was uh, great. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that, uh, Hannah. Of course, there's people now who are getting educations on open source research, right? Namely, like you and your co and your cohorts at the, at the Human Rights Center at Berkeley, uh, which is the coolest thing ever. Because if I if I had had a pro program like that, I would have loved to have joined it, right? When I was an undergrad. So that's so cool. Yeah. So you know, there's a whole generation of open source researchers, of course, who are coming up through these kinds of programs, um, and that's going to be really exciting for when we start hiring again in a couple of years, right? So thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Jake, did you want to add something? Uh, Jake, by the way, is, uh, so this is Jake Godin from NUSI. Um, he's, uh, another excellent open source researcher. Uh, if you've ever seen the Bellingcat plus NUSI, uh, series, or is it NUSI plus Bellingcat? It's NUSI plus Bellingcat, uh, right, Jake? It's either way. <laughs> okay. Okay. I think it's, I think it's officially NUSI plus Bellingcat. <laughs> Um, anyways, if you've ever seen one of these videos that, that, uh, so Jake is one of the producers on it. He's also a brilliant researcher. So yeah, Jake, if you want to add uh, anything, uh, please go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say, I'm, I'm not with Bellingcat, uh, but I'm, I'm with Newsy and we work together a lot. Um, that's ex exclusively my job at Newsy is to work with Bellingcat on things, but I do, I got into open source through journalism. So that's another route, um, to getting into it because it very much goes with like reporting and investigation kind of stuff very much like i guess dovetails with open source work um especially in video which is what i do because a lot of open source is about showing how you know something or like how you figured something out and video is great for that um and there's a lot of really good journalist outlets that are like doing really good open source work i think visual investigations with the new york times is like the premier one, but then BBC Africa Eye and Washington Post has a visual investigations team and France 24 has a really good one uh, through their observers. But uh, yeah, I was just going to say an easy way or a good way to like keep to like make sure that you're, I don't know, uh, kind of like in the loop on open source stuff is like really participating in the community. I think you may have, you probably covered this, John Carlo, but like on Twitter, especially like there's so many niche communities on Twitter of like people who are like IDing weapons or IDing unexploded ordnance or IDing just doing geolocations. And so like participating in wherever that happens, uh, whichever one is you're interested in is a really good way to like stay in touch with the community. And in that way, also like kind of, you know, if you're using if you, you know, if you're using a different name, it's like people start to see that name a lot and they're like, oh, that's the guy that, you know, geolocated that one thing or like figured out that this weapon was being used there or something. So it's like, it's a good way to like kind of interact with the community and kind of uh, meet other people who are interested in the same thing. And in that way, you can kind of build up a, a following that way, I guess, and become known for that. And like, it's also nice because if you publish a piece on medium or something you have people that you can kind of like that are also interested in reading that and will read it and critique it or you know give you notes or share it um there's also the quiz time bot which i don't know if you guys if how many people know about that but it's at quiz time on uh twitter 
and they just do weekly or daily verification quizzes. It's mostly geolocation, but they do other things like chronolocation and whatnot. And it's a really good way to just keep your skills sharp. So, um, yeah. Yeah, thanks. And, and and as you're saying also, Jake, it's a good way to like get out there, like get your name out there. Because if you are consistently answering questions on quiz time, then people will know you as like, oh, this is the account. Oh, yeah, this guy always like gets all the answers on quiz time, right? Like people <laughs> will come to know you, right? Um, yeah. So yeah, so finding your people is a really good ad- piece of advice. So whatever you're interested in, chances are you're not the only person who's interested in it, right? So like, where are your people? Like, where where are they, right? They might be on Twitter. They might be on Discord. Uh, there might be like a network of people who are putting up videos on TikTok, right? About whatever niche you're interested in. So just like get out there and try to find them. And once you find them, you'll know. You'll know like, oh, like these 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 people are talking my same language. They're interested in the same kind of stuff. So that's a really good piece of advice, Sergey. And it doesn't, it doesn't have to be like a brand new thing. It doesn't have to be some, something that nobody else is doing. I, of course, that helps if you're like really good at like finding TikTok videos and nobody else is doing that or something. But like open source is such, the community is so like collaborative anyways, that like there's always going to be something, you know, there's like Samir is like 100% like going to geolocate something that happens in Syria, like within minutes. But that doesn't mean there's other stuff that you can't like you can't contribute yeah to that kind of like work uh just because somebody else is like just super on top of it because he's not going to get everything so there might be some stuff that you can geolocate and even if you geolocate something and he did it first or somebody else did it first it's still good practice and it's still good to like back up the like you're, you're doubly verifying it and that's yeah. you know that's always good yeah, thanks for that, Jake. And and another point that Jake mentioned that I want to um, mention as a segue into the into the Q and A is that um, if you've been listening, you you'll notice that Tristan, Hannah, Eric, Jake, and myself all come to open source research from different backgrounds. Like no no two of us told you that we have the same training, right? Um, and I think that's a that's a testament to the one of the coolest things about open source research, which is which is that whatever your educational and skill background is, there's probably a place for you to collaborate. So you don't have to have a university degree to be a good open source researcher. You don't have to have any kind of training in journalism. You don't have to have gone to grad school, right? Like that's where some of us are coming from, but don't think, oh, well, you know, I didn't go to journalism school, so I can't be a researcher. No, that's not how this works. Like whatever experience you are bringing to the table, that's, that's cool, right? Like it's, it's, it's about getting creative and thinking, okay, these are the things that I have. This is what I'm good at. This is what I'm interested in. How do I how do I transition that into like building up a body of work and how do I find people who are interested in this and who I can learn from and collaborate from. Right. So, um, and, and also I think that relates to the last point that Jake made, which is like, don't be intimidated. So just because, you know, Samir or caliber obscura are out there identifying weapons in a way that's like almost magic. Don't feel like, well, then that means that I can't, I can't like contribute anything. Um, you, you could be creative and find ways to contribute to even these conversations that are happening with, with these people who are, you know, the best in, in the field. So I'm going to go ahead and, and uh, switch over to the Q and a section here. Um, first just question. One second. Sorry. I just want to say really quickly on that note that like on the journalism thing, I don't think we have like, we have base hardly anyone of our researchers and trainers who actually went to journalism school. Um, I think that like Max and Owen, our editors went to journalism school, um, and some others may have taken some classes. But of, among our like core researchers and trainers, like I don't 
think anyone actually went to journalism school. So this is definitely not a restriction. Like there, a lot of OSIN people don't go to J school, right? Like I, I, I studied Russian literature, like Iganish did like economics, I think. Um, you do uh, right, political science, right? Cr so criminology, like, it, yeah, criminology. Criminology, yeah, yeah. So it's definitely, going to journalism school is absolutely not a requirement. And in fact, it's almost kind of unusual if someone has like a formal professional background in journalism school um, as it, when they do OSIN work. We're the outliers. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you're, yeah, yeah, Jake, you're the uh, you're the freak, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and Hannah, as she was saying, coming from from law school, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Okay, so let's uh, unless anybody else wants to add something, let's move on to the Q and A. So I have a question here from uh, from Dars, who's one of our uh, uh, wonderful moderators here in the server, and Dars is asking. Let me pull it up here on my phone. By the way, if you do have a question, you can DM it to me. Go ahead and send me a DM on Discord. I'll try to get to it. Or you can raise your hand, and then I'll unmute you, and then you can ask your question um, in in voice. So, uh, by the way, um, if you just if you joined after, um, and uh, we are going to share this video probably on our Patreon page, and also I'll give you a, a link if anybody's interested uh, in the Discord server. Um, but just as an FYI, if you want to unmute yourself, other people are going to see this beyond who's here uh, because it's going to go on Patreon. So the question from Dars was. Uh, yeah, so like, how do you find a niche? Yeah, so that's right, because that's the first step. We said find a niche, uh, but you know, easier said than done, right? Uh, so this is this is something that everybody has to come to on their own. I'll tell you that before I found my niche, which was protest in Venezuela, I was not at all interested in politics. And actually, now that I think about it, uh, the reason why I started that blog in 2014 was because I had a lot of free time in my hands. I had a weird job where I had like a nine hour gap in the middle of the day. So I worked really, really early mornings and really late evenings. So I had a whole, like a whole day where I just like had to fill with stuff. And I was like, well, I don't, I don't want to just like watch TV all day. I want to do something. And I remember thinking like, I might like, what if I start a blog about like Ontario politics? Because I mean, this sounds absurd now that I say it, but I, I used, I live in Ontario and I used to live in Ontario in Canada. And I was like, yeah, like, you know, I'm looking for something to get into. Like, what about like politics? Like I could talk about politics. Uh, and now it sounds absurd because I realized that wasn't my niche. I wouldn't have been good at talking about Ontario politics. Um, but because I had a personal connection to Venezuela and my family still there, lived there. And I, and I was interested in protests already because I was doing a, I had done a master's degree in criminology on protest policing. One day it just kind of clicked like, oh yeah, like I do kind of, I'm interested in protests and there's a lot of protests in Venezuela, so maybe that's my niche. So to answer Darcy's question there, um, again, how do you find a niche? It's something that you're going to have to come on your own. And you're probably going to like not find it right away. Like You might try out things that are actually not that interesting to you in the long term. And that's cool. That's part of the journey. Um, but if you, if you look hard enough and you sit down and you're creative about it and you really get, give it a shot, I think you are going to find stuff that you're, that you're good at and that you're interested in and that... Over time, you'll look back and you'll realize, oh yeah, like actually I've been doing this for a while now. I've been doing this for two years and I'm kind of good at this now. And I guess this is my niche. Um, another way to say that rant is to say that uh, sometimes you find your niche after you've already found it. Like sometimes you realize it after you've already been doing it. Um, um, and this goes to what Eric was saying about hiring people at Bellingcat who would already be doing the work anyway for free. Uh, so you might already be doing something in your spare time that you think is fun, and you don't realize that's a niche that you could then turn into some kind of research. Um, so I hope that answers the question there, Dars. If you have a question, please go ahead and DM it to me. So uh, just click on, I don't know where you would have to click, but click on my name, I guess, on Discord, and then you can type your question. Uh, or you can uh, unmute yourself. 
so again, we're taking questions on how to get a job as an open source researcher. Um, anything to do with that, we'll be happy to discuss. I'll give you a second to collect your thoughts uh, and send questions or ask questions. Okay, I see I got, we got, uh, what is this? Daddy of Dragons has their hand up. So Daddy of Dragons, I'm gonna unmute you and um, we'll all be able to hear you. Uh, how do I do that? Invite to speak. Uh, and I think now you can talk. Uh, uh, can you hear me? Yes, hi. Hi, uh, greetings from uh, somewhat sunny Mississauga, Ontario. Oh, nice. Uh, <laughs> I used to so, live there. Uh, you did, wonderful. Yeah, I yeah. live by Clarkson. Um, yeah. Great. Anyways, so uh, I'm curious as to um, uh, your thoughts on, uh, or rather, how many of you have tried to, at some point challenged yourself to uh, do a, be interested in some sort of story that's not, you know, in their first language? Because, uh, mm. for example, uh, I'm interested in stories that come out of uh, Turkey. Um, I'm Pakistani, and I can kind of read Urdu, but not so much. I'm, you know first-generation immigrant and forgotten a lot of my language. So I'm curious as to um, how many of you have actually tried to challenge yourselves by looking into stories that might not be coming to the West in uh, your language. Yeah, thank you for that. That's a really good question. So uh, I'm going to tell you that, obviously, as I said, I'm from Venezuela. My native language is Spanish. So for me, it was really easy to write about Venezuela. In fact, that was like the main strength of my blog was basically that I could translate because I, I, I was a native proficient in Spanish. Since coming to Bellingcat, I've written articles about regions in which of which I don't speak the language. So I've, I've worked on the Yemen project for a little bit. So that's that's Arabic. Right now, I'm working a lot on Ukraine. That's Ukrainian and Russian. I don't speak those languages. It's a lot more challenging, I find, to do research on a language that you're not familiar with. It just it's just slower, and you always feel like you might be missing context, right? Um, if you're working with audio then you have to get a translator, right? Because you can't Google translate a video of people speaking like Ukrainian slang, for example, right? So it is it is slow. It slows down the process. It's not impossible, uh, but it is slow. I'll tell you, I don't enjoy, like I don't like seek out that. I think that's a language that you use. Like I don't like go out of my way to try to do research in other languages. Uh, just because again, it's it tends to be more, more slow. You doubt yourself. A, a, I doubt myself a lot more when I'm doing something in a language that I don't speak. Um, but it's possible because we do it. Um, Eric, uh, Tristan, Jake, uh, any thoughts on that? Uh, um, yeah, I think that like the work we did on the, um, Shri Abu Akla, um, last week or the mm -hmm. week before, yeah. So this is the journalist who, who was killed in the West Bank. That was a good example of this. Cause I don't know Arabic. I don't know Hebrew. I don't know my, a whole lot about Palestine or Israel. Um, but, uh, Giancarlo, maybe you know more about about it than I do, but, uh, yeah. So Nick and Giancarlo did the bulk of the work on this. I did a little, I helped a little bit. I think with it, a lot of it is just kind of knowing where your strengths and capabilities are and try to not wade too far in, in the other direction. So this is a lot we see with the with the war in Ukraine now, right? So the people who don't know Russian and don't know Ukrainian, don't know the uh, area, they're doing pretty horrific work, on, like pretty bad work on there. If people don't realize like what, what their strengths are. So if you're really good at like geolocation, you know, that's great. Work on that. And if you're really good at some, you know, uh, you know, this and the other thing, go for it. But don't, don't overextend yourself uh, is yeah. one way. And I think with, with the, um, with the killing of Shireen, I think we did an okay job in kind of sticking to what we knew, like, you know, and analyzing the videos, the photos, geolocation, distances, all that stuff. We did try to wade too much of the things we didn't know about. 
So I think the biggest lesson from all that is just kind of uh, stay within your lane and don't try to overextend because there are millions of experts or millions of native speakers who could um, who who can correct you very easily if you try to wade too far or people who live in the country and understand the area better than we do. Yeah, that's a really good. Yeah, that's really good, Eric. Yeah, like knowing your limitations and working within them. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I remember I had to, I had to get uh, native Arabic speakers to translate the audio, right? Because I again I didn't know. Uh, what people were saying. So uh, yeah, very good. Did you, were you going to say something, Jake? Yeah, I'll say um, I did a lot of stuff with like Syria and uh, actually ended up taking some Arabic courses in order to learn Arabic. So I could at least, uh, the main benefit of that was uh, reading Arabic. And uh, so it made it a lot easier to go through YouTube or uh, Twitter or Facebook and find relevant sort like keyword searching and like relevant um posts or whatever that i could essentially help geolocate or help verify something but uh essentially especially with ukraine i always have like a permanent tab open that has google translate in it yeah and uh i think that's so you're not absolutely limited you just have to recognize that um it's not going to give you a perfect translation and especially in some languages like i think John Carlo and I were working on this T gray piece and it was like, we were getting some really weird uh, yeah. translations from like Amharic or something. But um, so it's just, it's good to like help with like a lot of the base stuff, but before you like really make any claims or like double check the city, you know, double check that the city is the correct one that you're like translating from because I had somebody was like telling me, Oh, this happened in Kiev. And it was like, Oh no, it was actually Kiev street in Donetsk. So it was like, yeah, it was, I don't know. It was like an easy mistake to make, especially because it wasn't a native speaker. But like, if you went through the translation, you could see like, oh, it's actually, they're not saying it's in the city. They're saying it's a street name. Yeah. 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 Some languages you you just won't be able to like Amharic, for example. Yeah. Google translate can only go so far with, with certain languages. So yeah. Um, Okay. Let's go to Alana. So I'm going to invite you to speak Alana and then we'll be able to hear you. Hi. Hey, sorry. Can you hear me all right? Yes. How are you? I'm good. Um, So I'm kind of in a unique position. Um, I've been doing a lot of nonprofit evac work Mm. for about eight months, um, first with Afghanistan and now Ukraine. But a lot of the work that we do involves like tons of OSINT, right? So I'm just kind of wondering, um, how do I explain this type of research? that's involved, it's um, mostly put into private group chats, like for immediate use. How do I explain that to like a hiring body or organization when I don't have any real like concrete collection of the work I've done? Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, So we can talk about, I can talk about like, how do you explain the work that you do to people who are not familiar with it? Because I've been to parties where people ask me like, what do you do? And then, uh, you know, Jake and Eric and Tristan have, have been in those situations as well, where it's like, yeah, like, how do I explain, you know, what it is that I do? Um, so what I usually say um, is that I'm a researcher, and I'll kind of leave it at that. I'm a researcher at an organization that publishes on conflict and environmental issues. Like, I'll, I might say something like that, you like broadly say that you're a researcher. Um, um, 
I don't know, Eric, and, and I mean, that's not, I don't, I don't feel like that's a satisfactory answer. Just say that you do research on the internet. <laughs> that's like the broadest thing ever. Uh, but Eric and, and Kristen and Jake, do you have any, like, what do you say when people tell you, like when people, when somebody who has no idea probably what open source work is, what, what do you tell them? Yeah, I mean, for from Lana's work in particular, it's, it's kind of interesting because I'm work. I'm guessing a lot of you're working with like private like Telegram groups and WhatsApp chats and things like that. Mostly Signal, but Signal. a little bit of Telegram as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way that you sell this, uh, I mean, it's kind of a little bit more specific to the question that Giancarlo is asking about. But you're kind of merging together, right? The your the public information, right? Because obviously, evacuation work, you have to know about the situations and what's what's possible, what's not, and all that. But where the danger zones are and kind of integrating kind of the peer to peer, like actual, like human work, right. With the broader, um, kind of due diligence, risk analysis, I'm, maybe I'm building your CV for you, but building with risk analysis and due diligence and all that stuff. Right. Which are all areas that use that, that hire for open source pretty, pretty heavily for, um, in, in corporate work. Um, so with that particular, you're kind of straddling the realm of open source work and kind of more traditional, um, you know, um, direct, uh, direct, assist, direct assist, assistance, right? But to more broadly, yeah. To Jean, yeah, more broadly to Jean Carlo's question, I just say that I, I do a lot of research, um, digital research. I, 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 I hate the term OSINT. Um, I rant about this all the time, but it makes you sound like you're working for your cosplaying the CIA your officers and like that. I just really spend like, you know, I spend a lot of time on the computer, right? I, I do digital investigations. I do digital research. I do, uh, online investigations is how I, that's how I frame it. But yeah, for yourself in particular, it's a little bit tougher because you're kind of straddling two worlds, but um, kind of thinking in terms of what are kind of the um, big picture things that you're doing and you're kind of combining because very few people do pure only open source work. Most people do combination. They complement the open source stuff into their normal work. Um, and very few people do pure 100% just only open source stuff. So that's a good way maybe of thinking about um, how to how to kind of uh, sell yourself with this. Yeah, I guess. Thank you. Yeah, no problem. I guess like leading with the uh, the evacuation stuff or uh, as Eric was saying, like the risk management stuff. And then like I just picturing a CV and you would put like skills. One of them is like, you know, uh, evacuating people from conflict zones. And then in, in like the little points, like one of the points could be using open source information to do that. Right. And then maybe whoever's reading that resume would be like, oh, open source. I know what that is. Right. Or if they don't know, it's a it's a smaller point and maybe you can elaborate in an interview. So, yeah. It's, uh, you know, marketing is really important. Jake talked about it at some, uh, sorry, Tristan talked about it, like, like weighing marketing yourself versus like being secure here, Alana, you're asking about like, how do you market yourself period? Like when, when you have to explain this kind of work to people who aren't familiar with it. Yeah. That's one of the challenges, I guess, of working in the, in the field. Thanks for that uh, question, Alana. Um, I'm going to go to a text question here. We got about 10 minutes left. I'm going to try to get through all of these. We've got one from. Why can't I see? Uh, Flemdog is asking, uh, it always seems like a plain catch up with sources. How do I get ahead with reliable sources? Yeah. So one of the things about working in this field is that, is that there's always new tools coming out. Um, um, and, and there's always new sources coming out. So people talking about like experts sort of being born, I guess, into Twitter. How do you keep up with this? I don't know if there's an answer to that beyond like always kind of being on, not always being online. That's not a healthy answer. Um, no, it's always been online. It's yeah. always, I mean, yeah, I'm trying to paint that in a nicer way. I mean, the more online that you are, the better. So like, uh, I think Jake, did you mention having tweet deck? No, am, am I dreaming that? No, I didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry. You said uh, having a tab open with, uh, okay. Yeah. 
So one thing that you might do, uh, in my mind, I saw TweetDeck. So like having TweetDeck open with different columns with like different hashtags um, or different keywords in like Russian, for example, that will expose you to people who are talking about certain hashtags or certain um, uh, words. And so just basically always having kind of like an eye out on the field and seeing who's doing what and who's publishing what, um, that's the way you keep up. It's, um, it's a really relentless uh, movement forward, it seems like. If you close your eyes for a day, suddenly there's like a new tool that's come out or a new resource that's come out. Uh, but, you know, you don't have to be the first person to discover something. Um, so don't worry about like, you know, every single day adding new tools or new sources to your repertoire. Just, uh, you know, be online. And, and as, as I said earlier, find your people. And once you're in a network, you know, you'll, you'll start discovering stuff. Um, let's see here. We got a question from uh, Howen. Uh, question. Are there any certifications that may help you make you stand out for employers? That's a really good question. I guess the shameless thing to say would be to tell you to sign up for a Bellingcat workshop. Um, so we, we do Bellingcat webinars uh, and workshops and uh, you can take our courses. I don't, I mean, I honestly can't tell you if like, I've never, like nobody has ever messaged me and said, hey, I got a job because I went to your workshop. Have you, have you ever had somebody tell you that, Eric? It doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. Yeah, I just think, actually, yeah, yeah, oh, we have, yeah, okay, yeah. 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 Oh, there you go. Man. Maybe, uh, maybe I'm being relentlessly self-promoting, but yeah, a yeah. few times you get that once in a while. But the majority of participants we get in our workshop are people who already do, who already have work, who already had a job, and they do this to like for further advancement within their company. So sure. that's kind of the most common thing. But yeah, once in a while we get it. Yeah, yeah. I guess the other big ones are like what's that? What, San is it? San or San something? Like the big one that's really expensive. Yeah, SANS, S-A-N-S. They're the ones who charge five times as much as us. Yeah, so there's like... They, they, they have a little bit more formal uh, certification process and all that stuff. Yeah, honestly, I mean, in my experience, again, I'm biased, obviously, because I'm talking to you based purely on my subjective experience. I had zero certification. I didn't even know that you could take a course on open source research when I was hired at Bellingcat. Um, so that wasn't a thing that existed. I mean, I'm sure it existed. I just didn't know about it. Um, and so, you know, certification is nice, I guess. Um, it's always good to learn. Like if you have the ability and the, the, the cash, or maybe you get somebody to fund your learning, that's great. You should do that. Um, but I would say, you know, I would say that's secondary to things like initiative and your own sort of drive to learn on your own, uh, your own drive to collaborate with people. Um, so I wouldn't go to classes expecting that they'll get you work It would do the opposite. Like I would work on myself, right? And then go to classes to kind of like boost up um, your application. But I wouldn't, I, I don't know, I wouldn't put too much stock in that, honestly. If I was looking, if I was hiring somebody for Bellingcat and they had certifications, I don't think I would pay much stock to them. Uh, certainly not more than like the other body of work or the body of work they can put, that they can point to. We got about five minutes left here. Um, let's get a question in from... Um, this is not a question, it's a comment. I'm not going to read it. Um, but it's a nice comment. Um, oh, here's a good one from Toasty. Sir Toasty, our other really great um, and wonderful server uh, moderator. What overlap, if any, is there with governmental intelligence work and open source work? Do the two worlds interact much? And is one ever useful to the other? Um, it, and along that vein is open source journalism use in official proceedings and trials, et cetera. So there's a couple of questions here. I'll say really quickly, um, the, uh, I mean, one answer is that open source intelligence, OSINT, 
is from the intelligence world, right? Like OSINT is one of the categories of intelligence, right? It's right there in the name that places like the CIA uh, or CSIS in Canada uh, use to collect information, right? So if you work at the CIA, you might be an OSINT analyst. Like your job might be to, call, to do open source research and, and feed that into reports that go into top secret, whatever, at the, at the CIA. So, um, you know, we're doing that obviously from the outside, like we're not affiliated with any governments. Uh, we're not feeding uh, uh, intelligence to an intelligence agency. We're kind of doing it from the citizen journalist slash researcher side, right? So there's a lot of overlap, I guess. Um, there are people in intelligence services that are doing this work precisely what we're doing. Um, any, anything you want to add to that, uh, Jake or, or Tristan, or before I go to, to the other question? Do they interact much? So we don't interact with them. Uh, we have a ban on, like, if you work at the CIA and you want to take one of our classes, we don't, we don't provide training to intelligence uh, services. So do we interact with them? I would say no. Although there was, like, that one former CIA director who once said in a, in a newspaper article that he was like, oh, yeah, Bellingcat does good work. I think he, he like shouted us out and uh, I think that's the most that we've interacted. I, I wouldn't call that an interaction. It just means that a former CIA director knows about us. And then is open source journalism used much in official proceedings and trials? The answer is yes. The Berlin, um, the Berlin uh, bicycle murder trial, right, Eric, was um, uh, reliant on, on, on open source research. Do, do you want to talk about that? For, for, yeah, sure. I'll, yeah. I'll go a little bit of that. So yeah. yeah, so Krista, who's now our executive director, did a lot of investigation into this. This is a uh, a Russian assassin um, from the FSB who um, killed a Chechen, a former Chechen fighter in Berlin in broad daylight. He shot him on a bicycle and and wheeled away before he got caught. Um, and he uh, testified a bunch, and uh, he a, a huge part of the case was built off of the the work we had done originally, and then they kind of recreated it slash got all the information themselves and complemented with the uh, official investigation. And he was eventually found guilty, um, partly off of the investigation, investigative materials that we um, published on him. So yes, there ha that, that is a uh, proof of concept that open source stuff can't get, can't put people in jail. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that I know that the UN, for example, the United Nations, the Office for the High Commissioner for Human Rights, they use open source information in some of their reports. I know that they did that on their fact-finding mission on Venezuela in 2019, I believe it was. They use tons of open source research that they cite as such in the report. And a big part of our Ukraine project uh, right now is to produce, uh, in, to produce reports essentially on potential war crimes in Ukraine with the idea that in some future they may be cited, they may be used by somebody like a prosecutor at, uh, at an international organization, like for example, the ICC. So this does happen. Uh, if you want to know more about this, the Berkeley Protocol, if you Google Berkeley Protocol, is a document that is made precisely for legal practitioners to build open source uh, investigations into their evidence building phase. So the Berkeley Protocol is a document that is made specifically for that, to get you as a lawyer uh, to build a team of open source researchers so that you can produce reports that you could later use in court. So this is something that has happened, and, and I'm sure it's going to continue to happen as time goes on. Um, we have no more text questions. We have no one else with their hand up. It is 629 here. So we're right at the end. Um, I am going to call it then. Um, thank you all for coming. I hope you found this interesting. Um, I'll probably end up, yeah, I will end, end up uploading this on YouTube at some point. And if you want to listen in, uh, I can send you the link. We'll also be uploading it onto Patreon, I think. 
Um, so yeah, thanks again. Um, I'll see you in the server. Have a good one. And Eric, Tristan, Jake, thank you so much for coming. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this stage talk. If you'd like to catch a stage talk live and ask the guests questions, join the Bellingcat Discord server by visiting www.discord.gg forward slash Bellingcat. The music you've heard is titled 1983 by Ben Elson and is courtesy of Epidemic Sound. <laughs>